Welcome back to the Tickle to the Twine podcast. I'm your host, Brooks Oman. Um, this is going to be episode two, and it's a jammed-packed one, that's for sure. Um, we've had a great, great week in the NBA, and so there's a ton of stuff to cover. Um, to get started with the podcast, I'm going to go to around the league. We're going to talk about uh, three teams that can that have struggled to start the season. That'll be the Heat, the uh, Timberwolves, and the Clippers. Um, in the social media moment of the week, we're going to talk talk Joel Embiid and um, his continued presence on social media. Then uh, the main event this week is going to be a breakdown of what I like to call the unicorn wars that are kind of upon us now with the so-called unicorns in the NBA and how they're going to continue to p- fight uh, this season for who's the top unicorn. Um, then uh, a break between that and the end, we're going to go over the beef of the week, kind of like the social media week, but uh, social media event of the week topic just kind of a break, you know, get a little bit more fun with it and just kind of talk about the subtle stuff that makes the NBA so good. And then at the end, a couple things to talk about in the fast break. I'm going to kind of weigh in on what I thought was an interesting list put together by Bill Simmons on his podcast on the top 20 players in the league. Um, also kind of talk about Chris Paul's return to the Rockets and what that might mean in the short term, but also in the long term, and then finish up with uh, Eric Bledsoe and uh, what his impact has been on the Bucks so far. But um, before we get started, I definitely want to shout out uh, Robert Covington. I talked about him last week as an underrated starter, a guy got to watch, and you know what? He came through and he got a big contract from the 76ers, much deserved. Um, it's going to get get him paid, which he uh, has very much deserved. He was kind of on the hinky special contract. He's been playing for about a million dollars a year. Um, for the last couple of years on just a great deal for them. And it looks like he's going to get paid around $16 million next year with uh, $10 million, uh, in the couple years, in the three or four years after that, which is a huge, huge upgrade for him and actually a, lo- a great deal for the Sixers overall too because that is definitely uh, going to be below what he would get in the open market if they let him go to free agency. But it's And so the Sixers make out well on this deal. The Covington gets paid um, probably a little bit under what he's worth, but still much deserved money that he, he needed. So I'm glad to see that they could work something out and we'll continue to see Covington working alongside Embiid and Ben Simmons as the uh, years go on here. So to uh, start off, I'm going to jump right into around the league and we're going to talk about the uh, the Miami Heat and their struggles. Um, just a talk here. Um, the Heat are actually my favorite team. Um, growing up, uh, when I started watching basketball, they were kind of just a middling team um, in the early thousands and then I kind of got into them. I enjoyed them. Um, I have family from South Beach that kind of got me watching them, and then they drafted. Uh, I remember them drafting D Wade, and that was just like that was when it started. Uh, D Wade's been my favorite player in the league since he got in, and so the Heat have always been really close to my heart. Um, I I don't talk about them a ton usually, just because. Uh, it's hard to separate the professional evaluation from the personal feelings, but I'm going to give it a try here. And so, you know, it, when you talk about the Heat, you kind of have to put it in context of what they did last year. They finished 41-41, and 41, um, but they won 30 of their last 41 games and were just kept out of the playoffs. And they were just a really fun team to watch. Towards the end, they played really hard. Uh, Nick Spolstra, Eric Spolstra, my, I'm sorry about that, had, his, had the team running well and the offense moving. But uh, so far this season, we just haven't seen that from the Heat. Um, a couple of their games have been hard to watch, I'll admit. Uh, watching them, they haven't looked good. Uh, but So they're 7-8. and eight. Uh, They're sitting at 11th in the Eastern Conference, which is less than ideal. Uh, this is definitely a team and a roster put together that um, could, should be competing for the playoffs in the East and at least fighting for that 6-7-8 spots. But to see them out in 11th is just not what I want to see. And So the, I, the thought process here is, you know, well, where where are these struggles coming from? Why why are the Heat having so much trouble in the early running? And 
It's not their defense, which has actually improved um, from last year. Last year, they gave up about 107 po points per 100 possessions, but this year, it's down to 104. Three-point difference can be huge in the NBA with a lot of close games. Um, and those uh, and the four factors that I talked about last week, you know, the offense, the effective field goal percentage, uh, turnover rate, offensive rebounding rate, and free throw rate, those are all holding steady defensively compared to what they were last year, so that we haven't seen them slide back defensively. That, that isn't the issue. The issue is their offense, and it's just not been where the Heat have wanted it and where it was in the past for the heat so far this season um they are averaging almost six less points per 100 possessions than last year which is huge and they have um the biggest declines are in their turnover rate and offensive re rebound percentage um the heat were up there you know they were top 15 in both both of those last year and so far this year they have been in the bottom 10 in each which is just not what you want um the heat are turning it over on about 17 percent percent of their possessions this year um which is three percent higher than last year which again talking about those small differences with their rate with our offensive and defensive rating that is not what you want to see you know even though that, that's a small difference it's only three percent more you know if you have 100 possessions per game that's that's three possessions and three possessions can go a long way um especially if the other team converts the other team converts out of two of those three possessions that's four points swung for the heat um and probably a bigger swing if you think the heat aren't going to score so um, that's huge, and that's something that uh, is definitely holding their offensive back. You know, they're just giving it over more, they're, and they need to kind of rein that in. Along with that, um, the offensive rebounding has not been good. Last year, the Heat were almost top 10, um, grabbing 27% of their own misses, but this year, they're only grabbing 23%, and again, 4% decline. The decline seems small, but when you think about it in NBA terms, that's a big deal. Um, if you shoot 80-90 shots a game, that four percent is a couple is a couple offensive is a couple shots you're not getting back, and a couple offensive rebounds can make again make a huge difference. Uh, a lot of NBA games are close. Um, point differentials across the league are, have been tiny this year, except for you know if you're the Warriors or the Celtics. But and so with that, these little things can make a huge difference in the Heat's win percentage. And so you know they lost a close game to the to the Timberwolves that went to OT earlier this season. Maybe they don't turn it over as much. Maybe they grab a couple offensive rebounds extra. They win they win that game. And that, that can make all the difference. You know, they, they lost out on the playoffs last year by one game. And so they know that these small little things are things that they have to come through for. And they aren't so far. But so uh, I do want to talk more about the offense and that you have to investigate deeper. Um, their effective shooting percentage is not bad. It's actually gone up since last season. And it's just above, uh, just a shade over 51%. So they're shooting the ball just fine. But when you really look into um, the shooting numbers beyond the effective field goal percentage, um, that's when you kind of see what's going on with the Heat and wh why they're running into issues. So they are not taking as many mid-range shots as they were last year, which is good. And they're taking 35% of their shots from uh, three-point land, which makes them third in the league and three-pointers taken, including 11% of their total shots are from on corner threes, which is number one in the NBA, which is, for me, that was kind of stunning. Uh, you watch the Rockets play and you just assume the Rockets are shooting the most three-pointers, especially th uh, corner threes, but the Heat are up there. But... The fact of the matter is, uh, the Heat are only making 35% of their threes, which is right around average, slightly above average, usually, um, but uh, that's down 1.5% uh, from from last year. Overall, you know, they shot about just a tad over 37% last year, and so uh, the 35% is not, not what you want. 
um, that, and that drop is, again, sufficient. Um, and the, but the biggest drop has come from the corner threes where they're taking the most shots. Um, that's down to 34% this year, and they shot 40% on corner threes last year. And 40% is a, pretty much a pretty unsustainable rate unless your name is Steph Curry when it comes to shooting threes. And so it was um, assumed that they would regress a little bit, but this this large of a regression, a six-point regression, is, is definitely taking a toll on their offense. And while their effective field goal percentage is being made up by how well they shoot at the rim, the loss of these extra sh- extra points on the three-point land is is definitely what's holding them back in the early stages of this year. Also, to couple with that, the mid-range shots they're taking, they're only making uh, just under 35% of them, while they made 40% of them last year. And so, again... Um, and so their shooting percentage on mid-range shots is second worst in the league, and those these numbers are not what you want to see, especially, um, and that's what's clogging the offense up. We talked, uh, I've talked about how the Orlando Magic's uh, hot start was was kind of buoyed by the fact that they were just making everything they took, and so the way that making everything can kind of jump a team that might might otherwise be average or mediocre to f- playing elite for a couple weeks, um, shooting poorly in a couple areas can grab a team that should be competing in the playoffs and be you know right in there in the fight to outside looking in and just being like what's going wrong um so yeah uh despite so these shooting numbers are worrisome um you would hope that these numbers that have regressed from last year aren't going to stay in this permanent lower level and that they will pick up a little bit as the year goes on but it's kind of hard to project um because last year they kind of had this Jekyll and Hyde season where you know their first 41 games they were they were uh, 11 and 30 in their second ones. They were 30 and 11. You know, they kind of just flip-flopped. It's hard to understand um, what what kind of we're to expect from them. Are they going to? Are we going to see something like that again this year, where they don't play as well for the first half, but then they pick it up in the second half, and then their stats obviously shift with that? Or are we going to see something more consistent? Because um, if they play at this consistent level, they, sh- they shoot at this level, that's not going to be good for them long term, and they likely will not um, find a way to. Um, improve their offense unless they can get um, more shots you know I kind of dove in a little bit to see um, per synergy sports what their shooting breakdowns breakdown was and they're about shooting 50% of their shots guarded 50% of their shots unguarded so um, because of that breakdown you were hoping you'd get a little bit more unguarded than guarded but that's hard to be that's hard to consistently make happen you know it's it's up kind of up to the defense and how they perform and so uh, there isn't any isn't anything in this number that immediately stands out as something that's for whatever reason not performing the way it should. It all seems to work together, and so there isn't a candidate where I look right at one number and be like, "Oh, that will go up," or "Oh, that will definitely go down." It's it's uh it, it's gonna be gonna be up to Eric Spoelstra to kind of get the offense going. Um, maybe tick up the unguarded percentage shots um, over the guarded percentage shots so that they're not even and maybe that'll help improve the field goal percentage and uh, but the other part of it is they just got to make their corner threes uh, the corner three is the shortest three in basketball you, they're usually usually um, open and uh, you can definitely see that with eye test you usually see this openness when you're taking a corner three because of how defensive are playing it and he'd have just got to find a way to put those in and if they can do that um we will obviously see the offense tick up and hopefully them make some strides as we go forward all right so the second team i want to cover in around the league will be the the timberwolves and their lack of defense um two years ago before they hired uh tom thibodeau the timberwolves were worst team in the league in defense and 
with uh, Thibodeau uh, leading the team last year. They were still bottom five in defense, and so far this year, they're also bottom five uh, defensively, which is just not what you want with a Tom Thibodeau coach team. Um, the defense is currently given up 109.4 points per 100 possessions, and their biggest weakness has been the effective field goal percentage, which is 29th in the league. Um, they're letting teams shoot 55% uh, percent effective field goal percentage. And this is mainly driven by the fact that they're letting teams shoot 68% at the rim, which is the second uh, highest number in the league. And they're also, and as well as uh, they're letting teams shoot almost 50% for mid-range, then the number's 47%, so pretty close there, which is uh, worst in the league when it comes to mid-range defense. And so those shooting numbers are really, really bad, but kind of as, as I've talked about before, um, shooting numbers tend to regress. Um, the rim and mid-range is a little bit different um, from three-point three-pointers uh last week we talked about the celtics defense and how um their three-point defense was a big part of how well they've played on that end so far this season and how um three-point accuracy is somewhat random um the defense doesn't have as much of a hand in it as many people would like you to think um studies have shown that it's generally random and that when in, in reality it's hard to keep a team from making their three-pointers unless you're holding them from taking a lot of them you're keeping their frequency percentages down um, it's slightly different with mid-rangers and at the rim um, because of how offenses are built. You know, mid-range shots we've seen going down, and a lot of teams will take mid-rangers. You know, um, a lot of mid-rangers will come contested because the defense is forcing you to take them. Um, when they're not contested, it's usually when teams guard the pick and roll by dropping their big hard. Um, this is something the 76ers did against the Warriors um, in their game. Not last night, but last Friday, um, they were dropping Embiid and, and all their centers back really deep on pick and rolls and so the Warriors were taking basically wide open uh in rhythm pull-up jumpers from the elbows and so that's that's something you can see um with mid-range shots that can drive up the percentage but it's still not a great shot whereas at the rim that 68.4 percent is just awful um the the Timberwolves do have Georgie Dang and they do have Carl Anthony Towns and you would think that they would kind of be able to provide enough of a contest at the rim to hold this percentage down but that is clearly not happening so far this season and that is definitely something that they're going to have to work on talk more about Carl Anthony Towns role in the defense in just a second but what I really want to talk about with the Timberwolves defense is the fact that their trend transition defense is horrible um opponents are seeing uh, 18% of their offensive possessions are coming in transition, which is the second highest number in the league, not what you want. And uh, in these possessions, teams are adding nearly five points per 100 possessions to their offensive rating through the transition, which is second, uh, third worst in the league. Again, not what you want. And so teams are scoring 127.6 points per 100 possessions when it comes to transition, and that's terrible. Um, that's not what you want. Uh, obviously, transitions usually higher numbers. It's usually easier for teams to get out and score in the in transition, and the Wolves are, are are the testament to that. You know, if if we were just looking at their half court defense, they would not be bottom five, bottom in the league. They would actually be a little bit closer to average, but. They're just getting killed on the transition glass. They can't they can't stop teams from getting out in the open and scoring. And a lot of that comes from this, the fact that on 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 steals, seventy uh, percent of Timberwolves turnovers are, or seventy percent of the steals that opponents grab from the Timberwolves are turning into transition plays. So that means a lot of these steals are not dead ball steals. They're open, they're open play steals with the Timber where the Timberwolves uh, opponents can get out and push and score in transition. And so. That's something hard to stop. You gotta. That's a lot of worrying about. Don't turn it over. 
don't open turn it over in open play you know if you're going to turn it over it's got you need it to be a dead ball turnover whether it's a sh- throwing it out of bounds on a bad pass or a shot clock violation and while that's not stuff to aim for these live ball turnovers are what really kill teams and that's that's what's proving to be true with the Timberwolves you know whether it be a, a pass that the other team jumps or the point guard you know dribbling it and losing control so that the other team rips it and rips and runs that's just you can't have that on a consistent basis to have a top top defense and the Timberwolves are the gleaming example of that so far this season um, obviously offense is not what Thibodeau's known for as much and so the uh, Timberwolves have to work on this uh, part of this has to come with just the style of play they have um, Andrew Wiggins and Jimmy Butler are kind of guys that like to go one-on-one they like to go solo and play some iso ball and when they when they get a little bit sporadic or they lose the handle that's going to lead to these open ball these live ball turnovers and and easy transition possessions and so they have to find a way to kind of pack it in and not have that happen as much whatever might be the best way to do that they just need to be a little bit more careful with the ball they need to uh, see doubles when they come stuff like that you know kind of base um, basketball skills that you have and they they have them obviously they just need to make sure they, they convert them into keeping opponents from pulling out in transition and while I hate to make the suggestion they need to seriously consider fouling to stop fast breaks um, I think the fouling to stop fast breaks is one of the plagues on the NBA so far this season actually I hate when I see someone that I want to see in transition whether it be Giannis Adetokounmpo or Ben Simmons or even Andrew Wiggins on on the Timberwolves they'll get a live ball steal they'll go to, to run and the closest guy to them will just hug them or grab them or something and it's not a clear path foul because there might be someone ahead of them whether it be their teammate or a defender who's slightly out of position but still ahead of them technically but I, I do think this is something the NBA should look into um it's just kind of taking away some excitement of the game when I see a live ball turnover happen I'm like oh this is going to be great and then no it just turns out to be a foul and we're going to take the ball out of bounds it kind of kills it but sorry for that little tangent but that is something the Timberwolves should consider um if to keep their the opponents from getting such easy transition plays um, I specifically do want to talk about Carl Anthony Towns. Um, he has been struggling on defense basically since he's come into the league, and this year it, it's been even bigger of a problem. Uh, like I said, other teams are shooting 68% at the rim and 47% for mid-range, and a lot of that has to do with Carl Anthony Towns. Um, when you watch a film on him, it becomes very clear that his instincts aren't great defensively. He's got great offensive instincts. He sees things well. He sees the floor well. He understands what to do on offense. Defense, that just isn't there for him yet. Um, you kind of see him kind of being unsure of what to do at times. Do I do I come over for help? Do I stay back on my guy? He doesn't read the situations as perfectly as you'd like. And that is de- that is definitely an issue that he's going to have to work out, um, whether it's watching more film or just kind of more and more reps, which he's obviously going to get. And so hopefully as he gets reps, as he watches film, as he gets uh, experience in the league, it'll kind of improve. But um, despite that, despite the kind of instincts not being 100% there, he still could be a great defender. He has the athleticism. He has the size. He has the range. What, what you which also becomes very very clear watching a ton of film on him is he just doesn't give the effort that you need him to give defensively whether it be a pick and roll or whatever he doesn't step up um there was a couple of examples i saw against the pacers where you know it's a pick and roll uh al jefferson is kind of kind of doing a half pop or a short roll and he gets the ball around the foul line and uh, carl anthony is dropped into the into the paint deep to to 
protect uh, help with a point guard and so as soon as he sees Al Jefferson get the ball he needs to come up uh, you know you don't want to aggressively close out but he needs to come out you know high hands get the close out and just keep Al Jefferson from getting an open shot but what you see is a half second hesitation from Carl Anthony whether he's oh do I let Al Jefferson take the shot or do I just not want to go it just it looks more like an effort thing than a thought process thing and so that half that half second where he hesitates lets Al Jefferson get an easy jumper that's what I, I saw a lot of that or it was Devonta Sabonis was getting easy jumpers you know basically anyone who's getting that short roll you can see that hesitation from Carl Anthony Towns and that's just one example of an area where if he put in you know a little bit more of an effort that would be a stop you know that would be a contested jumper or the center's got to move it or even a steal because and a turnover because the the center isn't used to making decisions in that role and so that's something that carl anthony really has to improve um I saw Carl Anthony a little bit up close and personal when I was at Auburn and he was playing at Kentucky and you could see you could see the physical tools and everything he had um and that he was going to be a top player in the NBA he's got the skills you know he can shoot he can step out he can do all that but the hesitation the the defensive um worry and not being 100% there defensively on like instinctually you could you could definitely see that and that's kind of man you you're seeing it and come out even worse here in the NBA because you need to have that down pat to be an elite defender and, you know, you can comp- contrast that to, you know, someone like Joel Embiid, who just, he's got the defensive instincts. And, uh, and another way is Joel Embiid probably plays too hard um, for him. Given Joel Embiid's injury history, you would probably actually ask him to d- dial it back a little bit and almost play at Carl Anthony Towns' effort level for a little bit. Um, even last night against the Warriors, uh, on a fast break, Joel uh, popped out and tried to block Sasa Pachulia and lost his balance and actually... Uh, went head first in the basket stanchion and i know me just because i love watching joel play my my heart uh almost leapt out of my chest because i was like oh no please be okay joel but that that's a thing you know carl anthony towns needs to be playing with an effort level up near where joel is um carl anthony he's just not bringing it on, on the effort end 100 percent of the time and that's just that's you can't have that out of your star guy he needs to bring it all the time um you would hope uh jimmy butler will kind of instill that in him that uh you gotta come and bring it 100 percent every night and so I think if Carl Anthony can bring more effort into it and kind of get out, play a little bit harder, it will be a lot better for him. And uh, the, the Timberwolves defense will improve as a result. But other than that, the transition and letting teams get out and turn it over is, is the real problem with the Timberwolves defense. Um, and you know that those are the type of plays that probably make uh, Tibbs kind of lose it. Um, but I'm, I have faith in Thibodeau. You know, he kind of he plays his players a little bit too much um, minute wise, but I have faith that they'll get the the defense figured out. Um, the I think I think that what they have to address first um, will definitely be the shooting percentage at the rim. But that transition play, that transition points is is the is what's killing their defense right now. I think, um, but I think they'll figure it out. I have faith in Tibbs. So to move on to the last team uh, to cover in around the league uh, this week, I've uh, got to talk about the Clippers. Uh, after last night's loss, uh, the Clippers have lost eight in a row and just kind of be looked to be in disarray. Uh, part of this is made worse by the fact that uh, Patrick Beverly has missed the last five games due to injury and Danilo Gallinari has missed the last six. Um, those are two two pieces that they picked up in the offseason. Beverly is part of the Chris Paul trade. Uh, Gallinari they signed in free agency and those are guys that they expected to just have consistently on the court and i mean gallinari has has had injury issues in the past but they kind of need him as another playmaker out on the floor and you can definitely see how much it hurts not having him but uh when you when you kind of dive into the clipper stats you don't 
you don't really see an immediate reason as to why they're struggling as much as they are. They've got the 12th twelfth best offense in the league. They've got the 18th best defense, which aren't great numbers, but they aren't terrible numbers. They certainly aren't numbers that are bad enough for them to fall as far as they are in the Western Conference standings. So got to kind of look in a little bit deeper. Uh, their win differential is 26, so they're vastly underperforming their net rating. And so with that in mind, I was like, okay, there's got to be something more in here. And I dove in and I found kind of similarly to what we talked about with the Thunder last week, the issues that they have are almost predominantly uh, exclusive to clutch performance, close games. Um, They're getting killed in clutch time. Actually, they're performing a lot worse than even the Thunder were performing in in the clutch. Uh, The Clippers have the second worst net rating in the clutch. They're um, getting outscored by more than 51 points per possession. Or points per 100 possessions in the clutch, which is horrible, and that's that's mainly being caused by the fact that they're shooting 32.7% in the clutch, so that's horrible. They have to pick that up, and those those struggles definitely come out of the loss of Chris Paul. You know, you can't lose a player like Chris Paul, an offensive floor general, a guy who can score when you need him at the end of games, uh, set guys up at the end of games, and expect the offense to perform consistently in the clutch, and so we, that's definitely why we've seen the Clippers struggle as much as they have in endgame situations. Um, but also, uh, beyond these clutch numbers, where the Clippers' offense is, is struggling, um, because it's it, their offense is 12th in the league, but when you look at it, break it down between transition and half court, you see where it's struggling in the half court. The tw- uh, they're, they're 26th in points per play in the half court at 87, and uh, points per 100 possessions at 87.9, which is awful, awful. Uh, that'd be worst in the league if that was their overall offensive numbers. And again, that comes with not having Chris Paul on the floor uh, to kind of get guys open shots and kind of have the offense in order. Uh, they're only shooting 59% at the rim and 35% from three, which are both bottom four numbers in the league. And so that's stuff that has to improve. Um, we'll likely see that come up a little bit again. Three-point shooting is kind of, is somewhat random, and so if you're super below average, you'll kind of come up, or other teams will come down around you, and that will kind of even out where you're at. And so I expect those numbers to improve, but not having Patrick Beverly combined with losing Chris Paul is kind of why you see these clutch numbers and these half-court numbers decline so much for them. They just they don't have a floor general out there to set things up and make sure everyone's in the right position and all that. You know, Blake Griffin has shown uh, the abilities to be a top-tier playmaker for them, but he's he doesn't have the reps at point guard or the reps at point forward um, to kind of run the offense as consistently as you'd like. And so when you remove Chris Paul, who arguably a top 10, maybe top 5, maybe top 3, some people consider top two or best point guard of all time. It's hard to replace him, and that's that's kind of what the Clippers are going through right now. They don't have someone to set them up in the half court or get them going in, in uh, crunch time. And so now, when you think about that, um, the worrisome parts behind them performing so well is what, what will happen with DeAndre Jordan. Um, there have been rumors about maybe a deal to move him, get another playmaker, kind of set them up to rebuild. And if rebuilding is what they're looking to do, um, what will happen with Doc Rivers? Uh, Doc Rivers, famously, he didn't want to stick around Boston um, when Pierce and KG uh, got traded away because he did not want to be around a rebuilding team. Um, will he not want to be around a rebuilding team with the Clippers? Is he happy to stay with the Clippers because his son's there? Those are all questions that need to be asked. Um, Doc, Will Doc be the second coach fired this season after um, Watson uh, was fired in Phoenix? Uh, we'll see. Um, personally, I, I think... Based on you know interviews I've heard with Steve Ballmer and how he wants to run the team, I think he will probably try to avoid a full-scale rebuild. Um, but how successful will that be for them? You know, 
you can't if you kind of just middle it's hard to build a championship team um just ask the Denver, Denver Nuggets who are a league past darling right now but they've they've kind of just been middling for a while since they lost Carmelo and so um it's hard to get a stud that way although they found a way to get Nikola Jokic um and so and he's been huge for them but We'll kind of have to see how the Clippers want to play it. Uh, they've got a competent, a great front, a good front office. Um, I think Steve Ballmer is committed to making sure the team is is not only good but exciting and fun. And so I think they'll figure it out. Um, whether that means Doc Rivers is going to have to be moved on from, or they're going to have to deal someone, we'll find out. Um, but I would wait um, and just kind of assess things once Beverly and Gallinari get back on the floor. Uh, Beverly should be back. Um, he said he said he's on track to be play against the Knicks on Monday night, and so hopefully we see him then and they improve with that. Um, and then once they get Gallinari back, that'll obviously change things dramatically too. But I think it might be a little bit too early to completely panic on them. But I would not be surprised if a move to uh, get someone came uh, sooner rather than later. All right, and so uh, to take a break in between the kind of uh, stats-heavy and kind of more serious parts of the podcast, um, I'm going to move on to the social media uh, moment of the week, and um, I kind of want to kind of improve this every week, but uh, this one is definitely a fun week for this because Joel Embiid was certainly active on the social media game uh, this week, and uh, if you aren't following Joel on Instagram and and Twitter, he's a a must-follow. He's a great time, but... So first, first off, what happened was he uh, Monday night when they played the Clippers, uh, Joel got kind of got into it with Willie Reed of the Clippers. Uh, Willie Reed actually got him with a uh, flagrant foul, Joel, and was kind of very upset with Joel. Just c- couldn't guard him, and that kind of led to Willie Reed getting a little angry and having to spend a lot of time on the bench and basically just being a foul machine. And so in uh, true Joel Embiid fashion, after the game, he posted an Instagram um, with Joel kind of pointing uh, towards Willie Reed, who's being talked to by the ref after a particularly hard foul, and the caption is "Whose man is this?" which is which is just perfectly sums up the game. Um, there was definitely you definitely could tell that while uh, Willie Reed was kind of getting real angry, Joel just all thought just thought it was a joke while you were watching the game, and he took advantage of Willie and just kind of basically destroyed him uh, pretty easily. But not to be, uh, he, Joel obviously wanted to follow that on, follow that up. And two days later, when uh, Joel and the Sixers kind of Sixers uh, fought a tough win against the Lakers, but that was behind Joel's historic performance. Um, Joel posted a picture of him uh, making a layup over uh, Lonzo Ball with a "What a night" uh, and the hashtag "Trust the process." But the location setting on the Instagram was the best part, as he was the location was Lavar. Um, which is a, a city in Iran, and that's just absolutely perfect. Um, that kind of builds on the fact that when Lonzo was drafted, Joel tweeted, uh, I hope you dunk on him so bad that his daddy comes on the on the court to save him at Ben Simmons, talking about Lonzo, and lo and behold, just a couple minutes into the game, Lonzo or, uh, Ben Simmons did just that, where he just ripped off this vicious dunk over top of Lonzo after Lonzo played some particularly apathetic defense. So that was great. And then, you know, uh, Joel finished it up with, uh, we had a great couple of of days in LA, uh, along with some crown emojis, kind of playing off of the uh, uh, LeBron James, Enos Cantor beef from that part, from the early part of the week as well, which I will talk about um, in our second break of the podcast. But yeah, Joel is just a great, um, everything he does on Instagram and most things he does on Twitter, I always have a good laugh at the kind of the time he's having. It's uh, no coincidence that the first two social media moments of the week uh, for the podcast have kind of revolved around Joel just kind of in his hijinks on 
social media it's definitely worth che- worth checking out um i don't follow all the players but joel is definitely a player that i would recommend just go follow um he's worth it you know uh whatever appears on your timeline you should have a good chuckle at or find at least a little, somewhat amusing and so i would i would definitely I, I love it so i would definitely look out for it on a weekly basis all right so after that i do want to move on to the main event which i kind of want to title the unicorn wars um, the unicorns have kind of been this new thing that's come up in the NBA with the emergence of Joel Embiid, Giannis Antetokounmpo, Kristaps Porzingis, Nikolai Jokic, Carl um, Anthony Towns, Anthony Davis. These are all guys that have just kind of been talked about as this unicorn generation. These guys that kind of go beyond position, are so big, and at, but athletically gifted for their size as well, and just kind of make you so like, what? How can he do that? You know, whether it's you know Giannis, who's nearly seven feet tall. He, can take two steps from the from the half court line and dunk the ball. You know, Chris Stapp's doing what he does, handling it well. Same thing with Joel Embiid. You know, he shoots shoots threes. He can handle. He can do everything he needs to do. And uh, Nikolai Jokic might be the um, might be the hardest one uh, or the most le- uh, least known one because he's on the Nuggets. They don't play on national TV as much as the other guys. He's he's uh, lesser known. You know, he doesn't put up the point stats that the other guy does. But Jokic ha- is quite a character. Um, both Zach Lowe and Howard Beck talked about him recently in pieces that they covered when they were with the Nuggets. Um, Jokic is certainly a fun guy. He's got two kind of manic older brothers that he lives with in Denver that um, that's form a fun trio to just read about. Um, they're all from Croatia, but he's definitely worth um, being mentioned here in the Unicorn Wars because, you know, he's the centerpiece for the Nuggets. He's kind of the engine behind their offense. His, pass, his passes are beautiful and worth looking up on a nightly basis. And then, you know, you have Carl Anthony Towns and Anthony Davis, the twin bigs from Kentucky that have been making making uh been solid for their team since they got into the league but like um i think an interesting way to think about this and actually bill simmons covered this in a column he wrote on friday about who has the unicorn championship belt is the way he put it and he said lebron has had it um basically since uh i think he said 2012 and there's no end in sight to lebron uh relinquishing it and i kind of disagree a little bit um obviously lebron um is kind of different and, and can play all five positions and kind of fits the mold of the traditional unicorn. But LeBron is also a lot more similar to past players than we've seen in any of these new guys. You know, you can't really just describe describe Joel Embiid. It's kind of, oh, well, he's kind of like Olajuwon with a little bit of Shaq, with a little bit of, you know, and that's the kind of the way you have to describe him. Same thing with Chris Stapps. It's like, oh, Dirk, but if he could, you know, dribble, you know, there has there's no one really we can compare Jokic to. Um, same with uh Anthony Davis and Carl Towns, although Anthony uh, Davis and Carl and Carl Towns are kind of closer to more uh, archetypes that we've seen in the NBA before, so I kind of I kind of just disagree with the whole LeBron holds the unicorn belt. I I just don't think uh, we're going to put LeBron in that category. Um, If we want to put LeBron in that category, then Ben Simmons would also need to be included in here as part of a unicorn. So I could go either way on that. I generally don't uh, generally don't think LeBron is technically a unicorn. Um, you know, he's never been injured, which is obviously absurd, but we've seen guys with his body type before, maybe not to the level that he's at, but we've seen guys with his body type, whereas I don't think that we've ever seen anyone with Giannis's body type. So, you know, when you look down at the stats for these, uh, these unicorns, uh, the six that I mentioned first, Giannis, Chris Stapps, Jokic, Embiid, uh, Carl Anthony Towns, and Davis, you know, these guys are putting up numbers across the board, whether it be points per game and PER, where Giannis, Giannis is averaging 30 points per game. He's, his 30.9 PER kind of leads the league so far. 
you got Jokic, who's grabbing 11.6 boards a game. Same with Carl Anthony Towns. And B scoring consistently 23 points per game. Uh, same with Chris Tapps, who's got nearly 28 points per game. They got high numbers of box plus minus, high numbers of win score. They're all shooting pretty well other than Chris Tapps. And so what I really want to talk about with these guys, I'm not going to get super, super heady um, with the numbers for them, but th- they are, these are the exciting young players. Um, this These guys are, in my opinion, the class that are going to kind of push out LeBron's class of dominance and be like no we're here this is we're gonna run the league and a a big thing to talk about with them too is if you've noticed other than Giannis who's more of who's listed as small forward but plays every position all of these guys are centers power forwards Chris Stapps plays power forward more often than not um so does Anthony Davis next to DeMarcus Cousins but they could all really play center and naturally if you're just kind of building a team from scratch and I was just given one of these I would just plan for them to be my center and so what this is, is after, you know, the 90s was a big decade for centers, and then, you know, early thousands, we had we had Duncan, who's more of a power forward, but kind of a center too, and Shaq, who was, who was probably one of the best, if not the best center of all time. We've kind of seen, and especially in the last couple of years, how the center position has just declined and dropped off guys like Roy Hibbert, who were big players in the, in the uh, early, uh, you know, 2011, 2012, 2013, have kind of disappeared from the league. Um, the New Orleans Pelicans, outside of Anthony Davis and uh, DeMarcus Cousins, have a bunch of guys, Ashik and Ajinka, uh, who just don't play um, because the center position has just become widely uh, old school and you just can't can't play them if they can't defend younger guy, uh, smaller guys. Well, what these unicorns are really doing is they are they are centers by body type who can play multi, who can play multiple positions and do things that you don't expect from centers and this is kind of the reinvigorating of the center position which is super exciting I think you know we before these guys when you don't talk about these guys most guys in the NBA are kind of like centers that either they just play good defense and they they kill it on the pick and roll like rolling to the basket and killing it on the glass and these guys who can do everything you know Chris Stapps can set up his own offense he can post up he can score he can attack from the perimeter uh same thing with Jokic same thing with Embiid um all of these guys are guys that you can put the ball in their hands uh, probably with the exception of Embiid we've seen them have their ball in their hands for pick and rolls um Embiid uh does run big big pick and rolls with Simmons but he usually doesn't handle it um Giannis obviously runs the pick and roll um he also sets the screen in the pick and roll Giannis does everything um Giannis is probably the one guy on here who can play all five positions if you truly want him to and so um all of these guys are super exciting to watch. I think uh, the idea of having the Unicorn Wars and why I wanted to talk about it um, on the podcast is because if you if you have a chance to watch these guys, you got to watch them. They're super fun to watch. They're they're the uh, with the ex- I, I, yeah I would say they're all basically the best player on their team. Carl Anthony has a little bit of ways to go to pass Jimmy Butler and. Anthony Davis, DeMarcus Cousins is a serious argument, but Jokic is certainly the best player on the Nuggets. I don't and uh, Giannis, who's almost been the best player in the league so far this season. He, he's had a, a uh, not as good last couple week or so, and while Harden and LeBron have exploded to kind of say, "Oh no, we're we're still here." Giannis has basically been the best player in the league for the majority of the season so far. These guys are killing it. Um, I've heard some arguments that Ben Simmons is already better than Embiid um, because the risk of Embiid injury kind of holds him back. But while I while um, Embiid's injury risk is certainly something you have to factor for. That doesn't diminish from his greatness, and he has certainly been the best player on the Sixers so far. So all of these guys are probably the best, if not the second best player on their team. They're all top guys in their position class, and you know, like I said, almost all of these guys are centers, and they're probably all the top centers in the league. Um, you would definitely throw Demarcus Cousins in the argument for top center in the league, but otherwise, you know, Embiid, 
Jokic, Chris Stapps, Cat, they all need to be considered as the top center, the top top big in the league. So um, I don't know if I want to like assign a winner, like who's the best unicorn um, on a weekly basis or even a monthly basis. They're just guys you got to watch. But I think if I were to, uh, Embiid would definitely win unicorn, the unicorn wars for this week. Uh, he just just showed historic dominance um, in the back-to-back games in LA this week. You know, he solid game against the Clippers, 32.16 rebounds, 55% shooting. And as I mentioned earlier, he just kind of dominated Willie Reed and just showed Willie Reed. Yeah. Get out of here. Like you have no chance. And then versus the Lakers, MB put up 46 points, 15 rebounds, seven assists, seven blocks. He shot 70% from the field and 16 of 19 from the free throw line, which was a historic performance. Uh, no one had put up numbers like that before. Um, while I don't really love the whole, like, let's put in someone's exact stat line and see if uh, anyone else has ever done it before, it, it, it does put up some interesting stuff. Um, guys have put up similar numbers to Embiid where they've had 40-plus points, 15-plus rebounds, and 5-plus assists and blocks. You know, guys like Kareem Abdul-Jabbar have done that before. Um, but it's just it's important to note how dominant he looked in this game. And this is this is what Embiid can be. You know, this is only his second season, and really it's like the second half of his first season, considering he only played 30 games last year. But I mean, he's he's probably the top center in the league. I would be pretty confident in saying that. Um, and he's just he he's unstoppable. You know, against the Clippers, uh, DeAndre Jordan, who is not a above average post defender, but some guy you, when most casual fans look at him, they're like, oh, he's probably one of the better defensive centers in the league. He had nothing. He couldn't do anything about Embiid. Uh, same thing. When Embiid forced a switch onto Blake Griffin, he just put Blake Griffin under the basket easily. Nothing. Um, Willie Reed, obviously, just he had nothing either, nothing to the point where he was super frustrated. Same thing against the Lakers. You know, um, Embiid Euro-stepped Bogut. He was, uh, or no, he Euro-stepped Brooke Lopez. He was putting it on both Lo- Lopez and Bogut, and Julius Randle got put on him. He said, nope, too small for me. Um, they played the Warriors last night. You know, he, he makes it hard for Draymond. Draymond's probably the best defender in the league. Draymond was having trouble with him. Uh, Sasa Pachulia had no chance. JaVel McGee had a couple really good plays, but was also having trouble. Um, Embiid is, is, is pretty much unguardable um, as it, when it comes to center. Uh, most centers cannot defend him without fouling. Um, he gets people easily with his, his barrage of pump fakes and Olajuwon-esque moves. And so he's he's a fun time. Now, obviously, uh, I talked about him earlier in the podcast about he plays a little bit too hard sometimes. He's usually got one or two moments a game where uh, my heart leaps out of my chest because I'm worried that he's going to get hurt. But nothing uh, nothing is more exciting right now in the league than watching Embiid play alongside Ben Simmons. It's just the chemistry they have. I, I watch almost every Sixers game just because of the fun that you get from these guys on a nightly basis. It's all—it's incredible, and there's nothing better than watching it happen. And so, I would definitely say if we're going to name a unicorn war winner for this first for this uh, first month for this last week, I would say Embiid. Um, before that, it was Giannis on a week-to-week basis, but Embiid has just been killing it. And if you haven't watched Embiid, you need to. That's—that's uh, that's not a you know recommendation. Maybe maybe check him out. You have to. You got to watch him. Um, also, the added benefit of you're going to see him play along alongside Ben Simmons, but it's going to be fun. I'm, I'm looking forward to their first game against the Cavs because, like I said, with M- Embiid's uh, social media, a game he will probably be trolling them if he does something. But it's good. To, it'll be fun to see the Cavs. Uh, Tristan Thompson's out. The Cavs don't have anyone to guard Le- Embiid. LeBron going to have to step up and guard Le- Embiid. LeBron uh, stepped up and had to guard Chris Stapps uh, when they came back and beat the Knicks earlier this week. Well, can he do the same thing with Embiid? Because my thought is. It'll be a little bit harder, but it'll definitely be a fun matchup to see. 
Um, and kind of a, a, a final tangent about the unicorns is when you think about a lot of these, three of the ones I named, Giannis, Kristaps, and Embiid, along with the two maybes, Ben Simmons and uh, LeBron, are all in the East. And so while we talk about how the East, are, East is a lot worse than the West and, and that whole narrative, it's important to note that um, it probably won't happen this way because of the fan vote, but theoretically we could have an East starting lineup of Embiid, Chris Tapps, LeBron, Giannis, and Ben Simmons, because you know what, I'll slot Giannis in as a, as a shooting guard and Ben Simmons as a point guard to make this happen, and I, I really want to know what five, um, what five West players could stand up to that lineup and deal with it. Um, if you have any comments, you know, uh, comment on this on this podcast with what five man lineup you would put up. Uh, tweet at me about it too. I um, uh, at tickle the twine three at Twitter. Um, but like seriously, what five man uh, West lineup is going to handle those guys? You know, obviously there's going to be some weaknesses. Ben Simmons probably can't guard uh, Russell Westbrook or James Harden, but Giannis certainly can guard one of them. Um, stuff like that or Steph Curry, um, Kevin Durant, and LeBron will go at it. That kind of stuff. So that's something that I look forward to. Hopefully it'll happen in the All Star game. I'll definitely be rooting for it. But something to keep in mind. All right, so now I want to transition to our NBA Beef of the Week topic, and this is just kind of to build off the social media moment. You know, NBA has got a lot of kind of beefs that happen. We talked about Willie Reed and Joel Embiid, but I think the one to talk about here is LeBron James versus uh, Enos Cantor and Frank Nilakina, or LeBron James versus the Knicks, or LeBron James versus the city of New York, however you want to see it. Um, this kind of all started when... After LeBron and the Cavs beat Dallas last Saturday, LeBron said that uh, Dennis Smith Jr. should be a Nick and that the Knicks should have taken him over Frankie Nilekina. And Le- LeBron obviously knew that was not going to go over well. And I, he commented the next day how it was not a shot at Frank. It was just kind of saying um, he thought that Dennis Smith was better. And so obviously they set up for a big matchup when they played the, the Knicks on uh, Monday night. And so Cantor... Um, Cantor, Enos Cantor, not really known as a super enforcer, obviously was going to come up and back himself and back up his boy. And what we saw early in the game, something that I kind of expected is after a made Cleveland uh, basket, uh, LeBron just kind of, uh, Frank Nilekina pilled picked the ball up and tried to win to take it out of bounds at LeBron. LeBron kind of stood in his way and kind of impeded his progress. And I was, I was actually pretty proud of Frank. He kind of pushed LeBron and said, you know, kind of get off me. And they got the play started. Um, but uh, but after this guy going, you know, uh, Enos Cantor rushed in after, during the scrum and kind of got face-to-face with LeBron, and they, they exchanged some words, and it ended when LeBron pushed uh, Enos, and Enos kind of backed away from it, um, and the the kind of confrontation ended from there. But I, I thought it was super interesting that this was kind of a fake beef, and then it turned into a thing, and, uh, you know, uh, after the game, Cantor wanted def- Cantor went to defend Nilekina and said he's a, he's a rookie. Um, talking about how LeBron calls himself king, but why why would, you can't just mess with a rookie like that? You go pick on someone, come at me or someone like that. Um, um, I see my team as my family, and I'm I'm gonna back everyone up. So strong words from Enos Cantor. Um, uh, but and Enos even was even louder about it when he said uh, said uh, quote whatever you want to call yourself, king, queen, princess, whatever. We gonna fight, and nobody's gonna punk us. And uh, LeBron kind of responded and said, well, I'm the king, my wife is the queen, and my daughter's the princess, so we got all three covered. So that's kind of his like way of kind of getting out of that. A, a typical LeBron response there, uh, kind of de-escalating the situation and whatnot. But it was fun because uh, after he talked about that, uh, LeBron t- uh, tweeted, uh, p- Instagrammed a photo of him at the at the middle logo of Madison Square Garter garden with a king and says i'm the king of new york type thing and Cantor responded on instagram on his own saying well we already have a king that's chris Stapps. uh so sorry about that lebron so it's it's a fun back and forth in the nba something that i thought livens up the mood something worth discussing you know it was kind of all over nba twitter as the game went on 
uh, I would definitely say I was kind of proud how, of how Frank handled the whole situation. You know, he didn't really back down. He, you know, the scuffle happened. It all got broken up. He didn't. He was. He didn't do anything hot-headed. But a couple possessions later, Frank actually took the ball from LeBron, just stole it right out of his hands, which led to a fast break. Nick, Nick dunk, and uh, I thought that was absolutely hilarious. And uh, it, it interesting to see how that played out. Now, obviously, uh, LeBron finished the game on an absolute tear, and the Cavaliers won. But I liked the. Uh, I liked the. Uh, the, just kind of the toughness displayed by Frank. It was good. Uh, he's he's a fiery defender, and that kind of showed in just how he handled the whole situation. And it was also great to see Enos Cantor and LeBron kind of do their thing, kind of have like this fake beef, fake fight thing. And kind of on that point, um, I do want to talk a little bit about this kind of going on um, a couple days ago uh, when the Lakers were playing the Suns. Uh, Contavious Caldwell Pope and Tyler Eulis kind of got into it, and in what turned out to be a little bit of a kind of got, got locked up. It looked like it might might be a it wasn't really a fight, but they kind of got got in each other's faces, and the refs and some of the other players had to break it up. But you can see Lonzo very clearly just kind of like looking back at the scrum and just walking away, not walking into the scrum to try and help out and whatever. And Lonzo's comment after the game was like, you know, no one really fights in the NBA, so I'm not going to try and get a tech um, just because of that. And while you know technically Lonzo was kind of right. Um, Luke Wong came out and said another, a veteran player had to talk to him about it. And what that comes down to is, while Alonzo's right, he, it's probably not smart to risk a tech in that, in that situation. What, what you're really doing by walking away is you're saying, risking a tech or even coming over is not worth it to me to show the support to my teammate. And that, that's troubling for me. I mean, Lonzo has been generally apathetic in just kind of how he plays so far this season, and he's very buttoned up. And so for me... It's worrisome. Like, dude, you don't have to risk a tech. Just walk over there. You know, try and de-escalate, but show that you're there for your boy and you got his back. You don't need to walk over there swinging, throwing punches, or trying to take someone to the ground. But you gotta, you gotta have your teammates back. And I think that will have negative, uh, uh, negative consequences in the locker room. Because if that happened to me, you know, if my, me and my friends are out uh, playing, or if I was out playing basketball, or I saw it at Auburn, you know, when, when our guys kind of got into it with other teams, you wanted everyone to have your back. And if someone didn't have your back, there were the guys were mad about it. They bring it up in the locker room. You know, we'd see some freezing out and maybe not during a game, but during a practice. And that's just not what you want. Um, Lonzo's having, uh, I think it's overblown by the media for sure. Um, we don't need to talk about Lonzo as much as we do. I'm actually a little mad at myself for bringing him up now, but I think it's, it's kind of worth the, the, the five seconds to talk about, but uh, I think there's a little bit too much pressure on him, but he, he should really think about just because of how much the, how much scrutiny he's get, he gets, um, how he handles each situation. I think that's for sure should be in his calculation. All right, and so to move on to the end of the podcast, I know this has been a pretty long one, uh, longer than last week's, but I'm just going to kind of end with the fast break. Um, so to first talk about in the fast break, uh, Chris Paul, uh, his return, um, he played uh, his first game af- uh, back after that f- the very first game of the season against the Warriors uh, for the Rockets uh, against the Suns the other night, and while the Rockets absolutely destroyed the Suns, they scored 90 points and a half, uh, 146 total points, just absolute dominance. Uh, Paul put up... Paul looked quite good. Uh, he played 21 minutes, put up it was a plus 12 and got 10 assists. And so, g- good return from Paul. I, I know the talked about how are him and Harden going to work together. That kind of stuff has kind of been talked to death. And this is a small sample size, but he looked good and the offense performed great with him on the floor. Um, I would say don't take all these numbers to heart. Again, it's one game. We will see how it plays out. And it was also one game in which they just kind of were on fire and they dominated. I think uh, I don't think he will have a super big negative impact on the Rockets, but you know that first game of the season he did kind of slow the offense up and kind of kind of hurt it, and I think that's 
more of the pattern we'll see as the season goes on rather than games like this where they just had everything clicking so it, it didn't i didn't expect him to hold the offense back very much um, I think he's going to be a, a, a solid ball handler for them, obviously, but um, I think they're going to have to look to stagger his minutes and see if his kind of slowdown, um, because I don't think his slowdown type of play will mesh with what the Rockets want to do heart with heart and pushing it, spread pick and rolls, lots of threes, lots of shots, you know, moving fast, because that's just not really what Chris Paul does. He's more of a ball stopper. And so I, I still hold out some small worries about how he will mesh, but it's important to note that he, he looked good in his first game back, which is good. It's better having uh, Chris Paul on the floor than on the bench with an injury. And then uh, another point guard, Eric Bledsoe, has had an immediate jumpstart impact on the on the Bucks. They were they were four zero with him in the lineup until uh, last night, where they kind of just dropped a uh, dropped a abysmal game to the Mavs. Just not a, not a loss you want to take. That should be a win. Um, and so what Bledsoe has really added is this just kind of dynamic uh, playmaker that the Bucks just hasn't had uh, to pair alongside Giannis since he's been there. Um, Bledsoe is a deadly transition scorer, not as deadly as Giannis, obviously, but the second most deadly in the in, in their on their team, that's for sure. And you know he can he can get to the rim a lot, with ease, and not only in transition but out of the half half court. And he, he's he's picked his spots nicely so far. I've really liked how he's kind of worked his way into filling in the uh, the Bucks' offensive system, but finding the holes for him to attack the way he the way he did in Phoenix. And he really has added this added this immediate. Um, ability to play pick and roll with Giannis and just kind of force switches, force mismatches and help out help Giannis get easier buckets while also being this new uh new uh threat in the pick and roll. Now Brogdon is a great player and I I, I really love Brogdon's game, but he doesn't have the athleticism that Bledsoe does and so when you have Bledsoe running the pick and roll with uh Giannis, you have to you have to change up your defense. Um it's they're giving defense fits so far with it right now and that that's something to definitely look for as we continue with the season. And the uh, last fast break thing I kind of want to note was uh, I talked about Bill Simmons' article talking about LeBron having the unicorn belt, but he did a podcast on Friday, too, where he talked about who the top 20 players in the league are right now. And I, I thought it was interesting to comment on it. Um, I love Bill Simmons. I've, I've been reading him ever since I've been a fan of the NBA, and his basketball book is kind of my ba- was my basketball Bible for a long time. Um, and I... And so it's important to know, I like to, but I do like to comment just because of the way he talks about things. I mentioned last week about how he said, oh, the Celtics three-point defense is going to say, is going to stay that way. And I kind of talked about that. And um, this week when he was talking about the top 20 players in the league, I'll I'll list off the order he he put up. He had LeBron one, Durant two, Harden, Giannis, Curry, uh, Anthony Davis, Westbrook, Kyrie, uh, DeMarcus Cousins, Draymond, Clay, Porzingis, Simmons, Blake, uh, Joel, Paul George, Marcus Saul, Jokic, Chris Paul, and Drummond, and so it was an interesting list. I had I had some disagreements here. Um, I th- I thought he dropped Embiid really far, basically just kind of saying that Embiid wasn't as good because of his injury risk, which was perfectly. I mean, it's a valid criticism, but I just I don't I don't agree because uh, I think it's hard to take away from someone's uh, play so far just because they might get hurt. Um, considering he also put Le- uh, Kawhi five, who hasn't played a game yet. But what what really got me here is he kind of. Ha- the entire time he talked about this list is he talked more about how the eye test versus the analytics and so he seems to kind of be putting himself in that camp of well the eye test is 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 always there and no matter what the numbers say if the eye test says something different you have to just say the numbers are wrong and and that's just it's almost like an irresponsible position to take the eye test and the numbers work together um the, the numbers usually back up exactly what the eye test says um i had a lot of coaches in college and they would honestly they would see something and they'd ask me to go find the numbers on it and nine times out of ten it would confirm what the coaches were seeing and so 
to just disregard the numbers because it doesn't fit with the narrative you want is just irresponsible. You know, I said earlier that I think Giannis has been the best player so far this season. Um, and I, I, I tend to think that, but you know, the last couple of weeks, he's not as performed as well. And his numbers have come down while LeBron and Harden has numbers have, have, have elevated them. And so to disregard, uh, Harden and LeBron's games, uh, and their numbers, just because that doesn't fit my narrative would be irresponsible of me. And I, I don't, you know, and on all honesty, LeBron is still probably the better, the better player. And Harden's probably so far had a better season just because of his play in the last couple of weeks than Giannis. But I, I, I think Giannis is number three and arguably number one too, um, I would still take him as a number one, but I, I have to I have to realize that my argument has severe weaknesses because of the numbers, and that's just something that like Simmons didn't really do, and I j- I just thought that was worrisome. I think when you when you whether you read Simmons, you know you listen to him or whoever you read and listen, if they start to throw out numbers just to support their narrative of what they say the eye test is. Uh, I think that's something that you just need to take with a grain of salt. Um, he used it mainly to defend why Kyrie was as high as he was and why Kyrie was the reason the Celtics were successful and just kind of, while he said Horford was been a big part, been, he mainly said Horford was good because of Kyrie and not the other way around, and I, I disagree on that one. I think I presented numbers about it last week, and I tend to agree with those numbers that Kyrie and Horford are making each other better. It's not one is the reason for the other's strength, but if you really want to boil it down to that, I think Horford has been better for Kyrie than LeBron was, and that shows in the numbers, and uh, Horford's uh, strength and improvement for the Celtics also shows not only in the numbers, but if you watch the game, because when you watch the game where Horford wasn't there, Kyrie reverted into to old Kyrie where he was taking too many step backs and he he wasn't getting consistent open buckets and wasn't finding open men as well and they still won the game but it's just kind of important to note that um because the eye test and the numbers kind of back up the Horford has helped out more has helped Kyrie more than the other way around and so dismissing one because you think the other and you want to remove you know oh well one the one game without Horford Kyrie kind of didn't look as great and then you just remove that from the narrative because it doesn't fit your narrative then um what you're having is you're kind of you're just talking about the noise and ignoring the signal because it doesn't support your narrative and that's that's something you never want to do whether it be basketball or anything else and so I just wanted to comment on that a little bit um I still love to read and listen to Simmons because he makes great points you know body language doctor stuff like that but it's important to say when you get down to the nitty-gritty to make sure you recognize that he might be kind of ignoring some important things in order to fit his narrative so thanks for uh hanging out with me this week on the uh Tickle the Twine podcast, or T-Cubed for short. Um, it was a packed uh, episode. This is almost 20 minutes longer than it was last week. And so uh, so I, I appreciate you guys sticking around to the end. Um, you can find us at Tickle the Twine 3 on Twitter, which is where I'll post links to everything. But we are also on uh, SoundCloud. We're on TuneIn, and we're on iTunes as of now. And so come check out the podcast. You know, I really would appreciate some rate and reviews. Um, kind of tell me what I'm doing well, what I'm doing not well. Like I said, it's a it's a work in progress, and I hope to be getting better uh, every week. But uh, thanks, and I hope to see you next week. Mm-hmm.